Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a next-generation politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Jack, and at this week's Roundtable, Inika, Jed, Kanisha, and I discussed an issue on many of our minds, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As we were doing so, we were keenly aware of how each day brings new developments, some hopeful and many devastating. As high school students born well after the Cold War, we studied the historical catastrophes of the 20th century, World War I, II, and the Cold War. We had hoped that we were past them, but we now find ourselves recognizing the strength of imperialism and are trying to grapple with those implications. We oscillated between talking intellectually and emotionally, reflecting upon the devastation being wreaked on so many innocent civilians, as well as the larger economic implications at a time where so many have already been negatively impacted by the COVID crisis. We're all grappling with how to situate ourselves in a global conflict of this magnitude. We can't just divorce ourselves from it as we watch the war unfold and impact people's humanity in real time. In an article last week, Thomas Friedman noted that the most hackneyed phase in journalism is perhaps the world will never be the same. And yet, it may be appropriate to apply that to what we're living through. If countries don't respond in a serious and significant way, we're going to see more authoritarian land grabs and more groups at risk, so the stakes are exceedingly high. We're living in very challenging times, making us all the more grateful to be in conversation with each other and with you. Thank you for listening. I'm Annika Kodestane, and I'm a high school senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today we're talking about something that's really timely. We're going to be talking about the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And I think we all have sort of different takes on it. But something that I'm really interested in talking about is the immense amounts of corporate backlash that Russia has faced over the course of uh, this developing conflict. I feel like that's Something that I didn't expect, personally, I obviously expected sanctions from different governments, but I, I didn't think that, you know, private companies were going to get involved and, and to the extent which they are going to be targeting Russia and sort of hoping for an end to this conflict. So I think that's something that definitely we should talk about. Uh, it's definitely going to be affecting the Russian economy. And I wonder how it's going to be affecting the rest of us and how we interact with different countries that engage in conflicts that we don't agree with. And the U.S.'s relationship with Russia over oil and how that's going to be changing, uh, especially with, I know, gas prices is something that people always want to talk about. So how that is changing the way that Americans perceive the conflict and, and what their stance on it is. Hi, everybody. My name is Jack Flanagan. I'm a high school junior in New York City. I'm interested to like talk with my fellow podcasters about sort of the situation in Ukraine and what's going on. I think that uh, when we were planning this episode a week ago, we were like, oh, like it, it might not be that relevant. And then it turned out to not be the case. And it is now terribly relevant and horrifyingly so. Just to like take a step back and realize like what's going on. Like, oh my God, there's a war. I think that when we read, you know, in a lot of news outlets, we have wonderful, like, write, wonderful writers who can do great analysis, but, you know, there's fantastic prose and it's easy to sort of get caught up in, like, this game and, you know, you hear the Ukrainians and they, like, curse at the Russians and everybody's like, oh my god, they're so badass. Like, I, I just want to take a second to acknowledge what's going on. I'm really excited to hear about my fellow podcasters' opinions about, like, what we should do to support, what we can do to support, if we should support, to what degree we should support, sort of all of that, because... The situation in the ground isn't really changing. Like the Russians have invaded, at least at time of recording, they're approaching towards Kiev. It sounds like they're having some logistical difficulties, but it's a very real possibility that the capital falls. So there's that. How? Where do we go from here? That's sort of the big question that I'd like to answer.
Hi, I'm Jared Horowitz. I'm a junior from New York City. And I'm interested in looking at this issue in the context of how we perceive imperialism and democracy in our lives. I think we had previously thought after learning about World War I and all these historical catastrophes that we were past the days of imperialism, even genocide, or, or just these massive empires, and that we had shifted and we had taken huge strides towards democracy and a nation and, and a world that was not always at war. And now in um, the 21st century, we are potentially at the beginning of a historical event that will prove that thinking wrong and that unfortunately we still do live in a world where imperialism is still strong and how we're going to deal with that. Hi, my name is Kanisha. I'm a high school junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm a facilitator at YVote. And I'm, you know, just interested in talking about the evolution of this conflict, especially how it reflects, for example, I think the first thing that came to my mind and the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds when they think about this conflict is the Cold War, how that was such a defining part of American history, modern American history, and how we're seeing some of the same themes resurface in this war, right? Like you see Putin, he put, I think, the nuclear deterrent in his country it like on alert that poses like a pretty big challenge for the Western world. So the US and Europe, you see like Ukraine trying to join the EU as soon as possible to try and get some more protection. There's, you know, Russia kind of like Indica was talking about is our largest supplier of natural gas. And now with sanctions, that's not only going to take a toll on our own economy of pretty objectively because of the hedge among the US is, it's going to affect so many people in the midst of an already worsening economic crisis that was caused because of COVID. So the thing about this, it's this like unprecedented amalgamation of so many different things, these long brewing tensions with, you know, Russia wanting to redraw the borders and within the Soviet Union, you have this wonderful COVID thing that we've been living with for two years, still wreaking havoc. And I think the most jarring development for a lot of us has been seeing how Russia is demoralizing Ukraine with attacks on civilians. And it's, it's just a situation that is so dire. And to some point, something that we can't really detach ourselves from anymore, because of how it's impacting people's humanity. Like, I think we see a lot of these issues on the news. And we're like, oh, it's just a political conflict that's happening. But here we are seeing in real time, like I'm refreshing the New York Times website right now and a live update just keeps getting added and added that the death toll is going up. There are more people on the lines of this, families, the people that weren't prepared for this. I think I'd really love to have the discussion just so we can bring the humanity back to a situation that I feel like is so easy to detach ourselves from and tune out because we feel like we're not directly impacted by it. One of the most dangerous phrases in journalism is the world will never be the same, or like the world has never been like this before. And basically the thesis of the argument is that this is a, one of the very, very few times when that phrase is actually justified in that like what television and like, you know, sitting and watching the Vietnam War did in the 60s 
you know, is now being multiplied by everybody having a cell phone, everybody having photos, right? There's CCTV everywhere. Like recently, the Russians bombed an administrative square in, in the second largest city in Ukraine. And like, there's a video of the rocket landing in the square, and you can see it. And so I think that, to me, what's really interesting is that it's very difficult for at least us in the West to detach ourselves, like you were saying, Kanisha. And I think it's also very difficult for anybody to really like lie about what's going on. So like Putin is, you know, obviously has a misinformation machine. But what's interesting to me is that it sounds like in Russia, there is at least the beginnings of some, or there have been some protests. It doesn't look like Putin is going to be unseated from power yet, if ever. But it does seem like there is sort of some, there is sort of some truth there. And like most people do understand what's going on. And I was reading an, an update from the Times that says like, for example, like people in Iran and in different countries are like all voicing support for Ukraine. I think that's really interesting in that it's such a connected conflict, right? Like we are all being affected by what's going on in Ukraine. Everybody is being affected by what's going on in Ukraine. And I think this is sort of coming back to a theme that this um, op-ed I read spoke about is basically that we don't have the luxury of containing it anymore. Like when Stalin was doing his purges in the Soviet Union, that stayed in the Soviet Union. When Mao is doing his Great Leap Forward, that stays in China. We have no luxury like that anymore. And I think that that's a really troubling prospect in that, especially now with, you know, the possibility of, I'm going to be honest, we're recording for like, you know, a week ahead release date. I don't know what the situation looks like when this is being released, but NATO is sending weapons into Ukraine, right? Like the US has released this like collective donors corporation or association to like basically funnel arms into Ukraine. It's not like named militarily, but obviously like if the Times can recognize it, so can Putin. Like there's certainly a risk for escalation there. I'm pretty optimistic that that doesn't happen, but maybe I'm proved wrong. The fact that this conflict is so connected means that there's a lot of public outrage about things that are that are going on and I think that's really valuable in getting like Ukrainian people's support beyond like the typical social media activism where you donate to a fake link that steals all your money. There have been like actual instances, like as you were saying, like Russian protests where people feel outraged by the actions our government are taking or in the case of other countries not taking in response. And I feel like that that's more of a of a use of individual power. And I feel like, you know, the internet, it really allows people like if you don't take into account all the misinformation and everything, like I think with this specific conflict, people have been really able to see exactly what is going on and then get that that sense of empathy where it's not like they are like a different group of people, their struggles are their own and there's nothing we can do. We can at least understand what they're going through and then try to come up like with a conclusion or a solution that way. And it's not, you're not distanced from it anymore. And I feel like that's really valuable. And I think that's going to change the way that, we as like American people, as people in general, try to understand different conflicts and, and how we address them in different ways. To take this issue into a larger, I guess, more imperialistic context, bring in China and Taiwan. For a brief history on that, Taiwan broke off from China. The nationalists went to Taiwan when the communist regime was coming in place. And now Taiwan is a huge manufacturer of semiconductors, which is a very, very, very profitable business. And China over the past couple of decades has been kind of trying to, to reclaim Taiwan, which they think is rightfully theirs. This Russia invasion of Ukraine, some people would argue, is giving China the go-ahead if other countries don't respond in a serious and significant way. And I think we could see a lot of countries 
taking a more imperialistic approach to, I guess, foreign policy if we don't send a strong message that independence has been won and that independence should stay. And just how an event like this has so much larger implications and it can put many, many, many more groups at risk than in just this, this one part of Europe. I'd like to kind of elaborate on some of that, like what we think, at least at this point in time, the implications are going to be. Going back to this op-ed I, I, I read, there's this very interesting part in it where the author does this analysis that China right now is being forced to choose sides. They can either side with the U.S., defend the Ukrainians, or side with the Russians, attack the Ukrainians, sort of buddy, buddy up with them. Right now, they're walking the line. Today, there was a vote at the UN, which I forget exactly what it was for, but it was, you know, pertaining to Ukraine. Basically, the only votes against this resolution were from like Russia, Syria, Eritrea, like other like Russian puppets. Most people abstained. So like China, like key like diplomatic players abstained. And then like those in NATO, so US, Britain, et cetera, et cetera, all vote for this resolution. And something that was really interesting to me in this op-ed is that the author wrote that like the Chinese are looking to beat America and sort of take over and, and have superpower status as like like sort of by playing by the rules. So the author uses this example of, the, of a football game. He basically says the Chinese want to beat the U.S. in a fair game. I would amend. I would say the Chinese don't have problems with like doping and cheating. But, I, you know, he's, his argument is basically that the Russians are OK, just like burning down the entire stadium as a way to win. I think that that's an extreme example. But I think that that is a really, really strong example of what they're looking for. And I think what's really interesting is that I think the Chinese are, are more rational than Putin is acting right now. Putin is widely seen to be sort of an, an irrational actor right now. He's put his nuclear forces on high alert. It seems like he's miscalculated pretty terribly in that thinking he could just have a, have a blitzkrieg in Ukraine and then take it over and that the Ukrainians would welcome Russians, neither of which have turned out to be true. I think the Chinese seeing this response might actually be more wary to invade Taiwan in that they're really nervous. And maybe I'm underestimating the, the CCP's desire to have this island back. But I think that with the really like fantastically crippling sanctions that we've seen, they've been kicked out of SWIFT. We've been, they've been sanctioning oligarchs. They're freezing all sorts of assets. And it seems like that's working pretty well in that it's really damaging the ruble, hitting Putin where it hurts. Obviously, there's a debate to be had about whether it's enough or not if it's enough, but we are doing something that is having an impact. Insofar as the Chinese really, really care about their economy and really, really uh, sort of play the long game in matters like this, I almost wonder if this is a more sobering reality for them that, ooh, maybe we can't get away with this because an invasion like this, as we see with Ukraine, has really seemed to galvanize NATO, galvanize the West into unifying. The Germans are reversing decades-long policy of not sending you know weapons into war zones, and now they're shipping you know, missiles into Ukraine. And so are many other European nations. Um, I was actually going to touch on like the, the declining value of the ruble and the like high interest and inflation rates in Russia right now, because at least I didn't even think about the global market and how this is going to have, you know, the same snowballing effect that affects various economies. When I was watching the like State of Union last night and reading the coverage on it, I wasn't expecting Biden to actually take such a strong stance against, you know, Russia and address Putin by name, but he did. And I think that does give me a bit of hope about where, you know, the US can come in to support Ukraine. And my question though is, and what I've been thinking about is, how much is our country willing to take and willing to actually insert ourselves into this conflict 
because of what Inigo was saying earlier, the relations between the U.S. and Russia, based on the sanctions we already placed on them, I think what was like kind of like historically unprecedented, like we've seen these sanctions placed on Russia before. We saw it in the early 90s. There have been similar sanctions placed on Russia since like the um, invasion of Crimea in 2014. But now there's so many countries doing it all at once and really just crippling their economy. And my greatest worry is probably one, Russian citizens that are going to really be facing this. Like, obviously, Ukraine is facing the brunt of the conflict right now, but I do anticipate it to reach everyone in both of these countries, you know, whatever role they're playing in the conflict, and also how it's going to affect us. I'm not the most well-educated on how it could affect the U.S., but I would love to hear your guys' input on that and how we actually see it play out, you know, in our lives. I mean, I think if we could tell you how it's going to play out, we would uh, <laughs> we would be in the Pentagon Any right expectations? Now. I think that we're going to feel some economic strife from this for sure. I think anytime there's a war, yeah. we feel economic strife. As a teen who is not involved in the economy with, you know, or is involved but is not interfacing with the economy, I think that that's justified. I don't really have a problem with dedicating significant resources to trying to fend off the Russian invasion, not only from a, like a morality standpoint of like, you don't get to invade other people's sovereign territory, but also from a utilitarian standpoint in that I, I do agree with Jed that if we let the Russians get away with this, or if we let them get too far with it, that that really, really spurs new bad actors. And so I think that there's definitely like a utilitarian calculation to be made of. Ukraine is a big country. A lot of people are dying there. And we should just try and stop conflict wherever we can. And, and it sounds like, you know, whatever ways we want to do that, I think that it's acceptable to have some costs associated. The sanctions on Russia have been and are going to like impact the way that we, I think, most importantly, get oil because Russia is like a huge source of oil for us and, and Ukraine. And even more than that, like I know that Apple is going to stop selling products there. Like movies aren't going to be released in Russia. There's like a, a whole lot of international and like corporate backlash against it. And I think that is so much bigger than like the conflict itself is that there's so many there's so many consequences to it where it's not just affecting the country. I think it's easy to think of it as like a political conflict, but more than that, like the country's people, that's what I was thinking of. Like, yeah, the Ukrainian people are suffering, but then you have people in Russia as well that are also now suffering because of the actions of their leader. And so I think that's when something that I, I, you know, like you just keep hearing more and more companies that are like not going to sell products. They're not going to continue their services in Russia. And I think that was, uh, like that was complete. I, I didn't really see that coming. I was blindsided by it. But I feel like there's a, a lot of people and, and companies that are taking action. And I don't think I've seen that in other conflicts before. Obviously, in the last hundred years, there's been a, I would say it's kind of just like a pretty consistent wave of going like American internationalism and isolationism. And especially after 9-11, you saw isolationism take a greater hold in our country because, you know, focusing on ourselves obviously there's more nuances to that than i can cover right now but i'm just wondering what you guys think about how those two like conflicting ideologies are going to play out here because that's been i think something that's pretty heavily talked about is pretty sure no one in this country is supporting russia's actions but there's still a lot of talk about how far are we willing to go 
to support Ukraine because, you know, like Jack was saying, there's no doubt that this is going to blow back on our country, you know, whether that's financially, whether it's a lot worse than we anticipate. So I just want to hear like your guys' stance on the issue. Like what is the extent to which we should be involved in this conflict? Well, I would definitely agree that there's no perfect solution where the U.S. is not hurt and we like, entirely help Ukraine. The two forms of resistance that we can provide, one being policy-wise and the other military violence-wise, I think the extent to which we can use policy in terms of sanctions and removing Russia from major economic systems the U.S. and other allied countries will push that as far as they can to try to deprive Russia of everything that they have so that Ukraine becomes the least of their concerns. That do we use our military or do we use any sort of violence is, is the line that I think everyone's afraid to cross because it means a lot of things in terms of consequences. I can't say if the line will be crossed, but I think We'll do everything to not cross that line. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.